The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. The problem with applauding before I start is you don't know what I'm going to say, so you assume that it's going to be good. Um, I was actually going to start with like a giant scorecard, you know, like you could actually hold up and keep track who's winning in the popular front of the United <laughs> front, but I forgot to make the prop and I figured I should focus on actually finishing this rather than making the prop. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, uh, I actually really hope that people will bear with me because there's a lot of history to try to cram into this stuff. And I really think that the best way to understand both the United Front and the Popular Front is in the historical context. So I'm going to be moving a little bit fast and loose, and I hope that people can help fill in a lot of the details and will, you know, not criticize me too much if I skip over what you think are the most important details. Um, so I'm hoping that I'll represent it well enough that people can draw some of the lessons out. And, yeah, so we'll just dive in. Um, to, to begin with, I think it's worth laying out some of the basic soundbite definitions that we're working with so that people can have a working idea in their heads as we move forward. And, you know, the, the united front is essentially a defensive tactic aimed at achieving unity and struggle of all the various working class organizations, parties, trade unions, etc. Um, of, you know, based out of the working class struggle while preserving organizational independence and the freedom of criticism within those united fronts. Um, so the, the whole idea was developed by the early Communist International and defended later by uh, Leon Trotsky as the sort of proper tactical response to the rise of fascism. Um, in contrast, the Popular Front is sort of the United Front's mutated, Stalinized um, half-cousin. It sort of postulates the notion that the threat of fascism was so great that it demanded cross-class unity um, and allowed for cross-class collaboration and required the subservience of working-class demands to those of so-called progressive uh, bourgeois forces. Um, it's first put to place in France during the 1930s, but was really laid to the test in the course of the Spanish Revolution uh, slash Civil War. And, you know, the Popular Front, or the framework of the Popular Front anyway, is still defended by a number of Communist parties internationally, and it's sort of the disposition that lots of them still hold on to. Um, you know, so strategically speaking, uh, that is the guiding principles that drive the different tactical considerations are really important. And in terms of the united front, the whole strategic orientation is how do you achieve working class unity in the front of attacks while you're marching forward and it's not actually possible immediately to carry out revolution, or it's not immediately possible for working class organizations to carry out revolution. Whereas on the other hand, when you actually get down to it, the goal and the strategy that drives the popular front as a tactic is the preservation of the Stalinist bureaucracy, and there's a whole number of shifts and changes that, that go along with that. Um, so that's, that's the working definition, and then we're going to go light speed. Um, so those are the general points. We'll come back to them. Uh, it's pretty easy to kind of start things with the earliest days of socialist democracy, even, if you're going to try and say, like, where do we start considering Marxist strategy and tactics? I'm really going to resist that, because, like I said, I don't really have time. So instead, uh, I want to drop us into the founding congress of the Communist International, where, um, you know, revolutionary waves are sweeping across the continent following uh, the First World War and the Russian Revolution successfully overthrowing capitalism in, um, you know, in Russia. You know, in that context, it's the first time where you have mass communist parties that are seeking to emulate the experience of the Bolsheviks in Russia. And so these parties come together to try and exchange experiences and figure out what are the best ways to go forward in their individual countries. This is what the Communist International was really about. 
um, and the most important section within the Communist International, um, as far as the the particular moment when it was created, and you know the you know immediately following the First World War, is in Germany. So I'm going to talk a lot about Germany as far as um, you know the situation, but to give a sense of the um, the context, it, it's really important to see what we're actually dealing with. Um, you know, when I say there's a revolutionary wave that was sweeping across. Uh, Europe, it's a little bit hard to like get your heads around it, but you actually have revolutions breaking out, revolutions and mass struggle breaking out like wildfire all across the the continent. And there's a definite feeling that when workers in in Russia talked about world revolution being on the brink, you could actually see that. You know, so like in um, in his uh, first five years of the Communist International, in a speech to a plenum of the Executive Committee, Trotsky actually enumerates a list of all the things that happened between 1917 and 1919 um, to kind of uh, to, to sort of encapsulate them. And it's like, you know, there's a revolutionary strike wave in England. You have the Russian Revolution itself, a revolutionary strike wave in Japan in 1918, more revolutionary strikes in Germany, um, in Hungary, in Austria. You then have the foundation of a Soviet Republic in Hungary, um, you know, fierce battles in Germany again, in France, there's these huge strikes. And so you get the feeling of these sorts of things going on. And the reason that I put that context out there is because it, the impact of that sort of situation is what's being dealt with right off the bat. And um, the emphasis that the Communist International carries out for the first couple of years of its existence is really on the imminence of revolutionary struggle and almost, you know, a, an assumed spontaneous revolutionary struggle. I don't want to go too far in that direction, but there was this feeling like even though there weren't mass communist parties, workers were on the rise and the thing that needed to be done was for the, the reformist organizations that had been a break on those struggles being successful, getting pushed out of the way. Um, this is basically through, 19, through 1919. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, the other thing that's an important, important point for the context before the foundation of the, uh, or before the, the enumeration of the United Front tactic is the collapse within the social, social democracy. Like I said, there's not enough time to actually go through all the history. Suffice it to say that with the First World War, mass socialist parties that have been built up over the course of several decades in, across Europe crack up because of supporting the war, basically assuming that this is something that could be progressive on the one hand, or that they should really hold off on their criticism until the war came out, uh, you know, blew over. And as a result of this, there's a feeling of mass betrayal amongst layers of the working class, but a splitting up of the movement into newly formed communist parties, centrist organizations grouped around uh, Karl Kautsky and various others in Germany, and then a right-wing section that sees it as, sees its main task as putting the brake on the revolution, but also then like stepping into the breach and saying, we're going to make sure that the workers don't go too far right now and um, allow for capitalism to recover. Um, a sort of image that's like really useful in, in um, getting to the heart of this that I really like is in the course of the, the German Revolution, the first, first wave of the German Revolution, when um, Karl Liebknecht, who's one of the main leaders of the Spartacist Bund and later you know, the early Communist Party, is climbing a balcony in 19, in 1918, and is you know is heading up the balcony to declare the Workers' Republic and the foundation of a Soviet Republic in Germany. Simultaneously, one of the reformist leaders is climbing a balcony on the other side of the same mass demonstration, and they speak against each other. Essentially, one declaring the bourgeois democracy being founded, the other that you're going to have um, you know a Workers' Republic getting started. Um, so, like you have these two groupings of 
you know, we'll, we'll ignore the centrist just for the sake of time right now, but you've got these two groupings that are essentially uh, competing with each other over the direction of this working class upsurge that's moving forward. Um, you know, if people want more details on this, they should really pick up Pierre Bure's, uh The German Revolution to get a sort of history of what happens in, in Germany over the course of this, uh, this struggle. But there's a couple of like little flashpoints that are important for the context, again, for the United Front moving forward. Um, basically, you have like a fairly small, you know what, I'm going to skip over that part. So th that's the picture. So the, co the common thread that's running through the, the developments in the course of the German Revolution uh, following an abortive uprising of the early Communist Party is um, a sort of striving towards winning larger sections of the social democracy to the idea that they can actually be fighting the challenge, um, challenge capitalism at that point and don't need to keep themselves within the confines of the sort of bourgeois democratic agitation that some of the more uh, reformist leaders are actually putting forward. Um, you know, so that's the, the orientation that they have because they are not a mass organization at that point and recognize they need to be winning the whole of the German working class to their platform if they're going to be successful. So um, get the details out of it, but up through 1920, 1921, basically, there's a number of things that they carry out to try and um, work collaboratively with the unions that are dominated by the Social Democratic uh, Party, work collaboratively with the actual SPD organization, and there's a writing of an open letter that's addressed to the, the party workers of the German Social Democracy and the trade unions, appealing to them to say, in the face of counter-revolution, what we need to be doing is actually fighting together for the sake of defending the revolution, and the, the strategy being in addition to better positioning ourselves to be able to fight against this, you know, right-wing attack, we also then, the KPD, the, the German Communist Party, will be able to actually have an audience with those workers who are not in the communist movement as of yet, but are potentially able to be one to it. Um, a, um, a, a Canadian Marxist uh, named John Riddell has been doing a bunch of really important work, preparatory work for a uh, series of documents on the debates in the Communist International. The uh, Fourth Congress is going, the proceedings of the Fourth Congress, where a lot of these experiences are debated, is going to be coming out in November. Um, it's very, very exciting, and he's got a couple of articles uh, in the recent International Socialism Journal that people should look at to get a sense of how this process of developing the strategy really flows organically out of um, the radical sections of the movement trying to figure out how to actually push themselves forward. Um, so people should really check that stuff out. Um, and through this tactical orientation, the, the Communist Party in Germany is actually able to grow quite significantly from, you know, 1919, from March 1919 through 1921. Um, and, you know, they, they, they actually really successfully implement, implement this stuff. But the tragedy of the situation is that um, a don't have time to actually go through all the details, but they have an abortive uprising again where they decide, well, we've, we've grown fairly exponentially. We've won huge sections of the, the German working class to our platform. Let's launch a revolution on our own. And um, you know, this is referred to as the March Action, and people can read more about it again in uh, Bruet's German Revolution. But it resulted in a situation where communist workers basically barricaded mines and factories and argued with social democratic workers about why they need to be going out for the revolution, fighting directly, and it just cracks up the KPD, and um, they lose a huge amount of the base that they had won patiently over the course of the, the couple of years there. Um, so there's a shift 
that ends up happening that says like ultra radicalism is the thing that needs to be carried out now. We, the communist international's leaders initially toy again with this notion that we, we can actually have these spontaneous waves moving forward and you should stop trying to reconcile um, the irreconcilable interests between the reformists and the communists. And you know this is done at the same time that you have exhaustion of the working class on a European scale because of these revolutionary upsurges and also a temporary recovery of capitalism. We actually have growth um, for a short period in, you know, in, in, in the time frame that we're actually talking about there. And taking these factors into consideration, the ultra-leftism of many of its adherents on the one hand <clears throat> and the temporary, recover on the, the temporary recovery on the other, the Comintern actually embarks on a re-examination of the German, um, German experience. And it's through debating these sorts of things finally getting to the point, um, it's through debating these things that they actually they, they, they put forward the united front as a tactic that's applicable in places outside of Germany and that should be generalized to the experience of um, Europe because of the political period. Um, so Trotsky puts it, lays it out there in a way that I think is like really, really clear, and it's kind of long, but I think I'm going to quote him just so that people get a, get a sense of what it's about. Um, so he says that uh, after separating the communists from the reformists, it's not enough to fuse the communists together by means of organizational discipline. It's necessary that this organization should learn how to guide all of the collective activities of the proletariat in all spheres of its living struggle. The communist strives towards the social revolution, and precisely because of this, supports concurrently every movement, however partial, of the toilers against the exploiters and against the bourgeois state. The reformists, on the other hand, strive towards conciliation with the bourgeoisie. But in order not to lose their influence over the workers, reformist workers, uh, comma, miss that. Reformists are compelled against the innermost desires of their their own leaders to support the partial movements of the exploited against the exploiters. The centrist, which constantly vacillates between the other two, um, has to try and you know maintain an equal space there. The circumstance thus makes wholly, wholly possible joint action on a whole number of vital issues between the workers united in these three respective organizations and the unorganized masses adhering to them. Um, he goes on, uh, the communists, as has been said, must not oppose such actions, but on the contrary, must also assume the, in the initiative for them, precisely for the reason that the greater is the... For the reason that the greater is the mass drawn into the movement, the higher its self-confidence rises, all the more self-confident will that mass movement be, and all the more resolutely will it be capable of marching forward, however modest may be the initial slogans of the struggle. And this means that the growth of the mass aspects of the movement tends to radicalize it, and creates much more favorable conditions for the slogans, methods, and struggles, and in general, the leading role of the Communist Party. We are, apart from all of these considerations, interested in dragging the reformists from their asylums and placing them alongside of ourselves before the eyes of the struggling masses. With a correct tactic, we stand only to gain from this. A communist who doubts or fears this resembles a swimmer who has approved the theses on the best method of swimming, but dares not plunge into the water. Um, so this is, this is the actual proclamation of the United Front program, and it starts getting debated out, like I mentioned before. And there's a couple of important um, elements that I think are worth uh, pulling out here. Um, and if people want to see this stuff in formation, I already plugged John Riddell's volume that's forthcoming, but there's also Trotsky's own um, first five years of the Communist International, which we have in the Haymarket Room, um, and you can read how these debates actually play out through his writings. It's not the proceedings. Um, 
So the, the first of the things that's worth teasing out, in my opinion, is the, the necessary con condition for the sort of unity that they're discussing there is the ideological homogeneity and consequently independence of the communists from the reformists. So it is not an argument for actually moving back into the German social democracy or the other reformist organizations. Instead, it's a, you know, a clarity of principle that's got to be actually laid out for the sake of being able to unite with um, other sections of the movement. Um, you know, the, the goal is to map out a common platform for struggle, but to really preserve the right to organizational independence, including the right to criticize and fiercely criticize um, the leaders of the other sections of the organization. Um, so, I'll skip over that. Um, so, like Trotsky points out, um, by initiating such a struggle for partial demands, um, which all the parties involved in the working class movement there support, or say that they support, um, the communists gain the opportunity to prove themselves the best, the most sincere, and um, the most serious fighters within the working class, and actually allow them to organize and mobilize more people than they would have by themselves. Um, you know, the... The third thing, just as far as like a thing to pull out there, is this isn't just about a maneuver of going around the reformist leaders who are recognized as being, um, you know, betrayers of the working class and all the rest of it. Uh, he makes quite clear, and it is quite, quite important to understand that for this unity to be preserved, they also have to show that they're sincerely interested in reaching out to the leadership of the German social democracy to say, "We want to fight against the, the you know, the rising of the counter revolution. Why don't you?" Like we're the ones who are putting this out there. You should you should be leading the class if you're actually that much interest. That's much more interested than we are. Um, so those are, those are a couple of the couple of things. The, the last one that I'll throw out there is um, you know that's worth recapitulating uh, from Trotsky's exposition of um, of that United Front that I quoted there. Um, that the starting point for assessing the applicability of a tactic like that is actually the totality of social relations that that things are going into the class forces within consideration are where you actually have to draw tactical conclusions from. To, to make that a bit more clear, it's like you actually need to understand the overall picture that you're operating in to be able to say, is it right to fiercely criticize and expect that you can force out, out of the way the reformist organizations, or is it the case that you don't have that sort of a, a mass falling at this point and therefore need to figure out how to, um, how to get to that point? Um, this is really essential, and I think it's the, one of the key big picture lessons to take out that we can apply. Um, to today, and that's that you know strategic orientations have to be what are de the determining factor of tactical considerations. Um, hopefully, that's clear, and we can we can talk more about it. Um, um, right. So the the last bit, as far as the United Front and the pra practical aspects of what it allows for, um, at least for now, or it's the last one that I'll point point out. Um, is that it, it's through mass struggle for these partial demands that you also allow for the preparation uh, within the party and the working class for the struggle over power itself. So it's through organizing resistance to you know counter revolutionary forces trying to break the backs of the of the of the trade unions or you know a fascist wave on the other hand that you actually allow for the groupings and the sort of self confidence within the working class to be able to move forward and um, think that it's actually capable of struggling for. Um, state power and overthrowing the whole of the, you know, capitalist forces. Um, so, in a certain way, it's these partial struggles that pave the way towards revolutionary conclusions for the working class. And um, you know, revolutionaries should be involved in trying to eliminate those lessons and uh, lead those struggles. Um, so that's the summary of the United Front. There, um, breeze through a little bit more history because we essentially have to move from 
you know, the 1920s and the 1930s to be able to talk about the popular front. Um, suffice it to say that, you know, the Communist International, which, like I said, starts out as a vehicle for debating these, um, you know, tactical considerations and other theoretical things necessary for advancing the working class revolution, um, degenerates and moves into a position where it's little more than appendage for, um, for the uh, foreign policy considerations of Stalin. Um, you know, if people want like the best summary of how that process happens, and I really think that they should check it out, uh, there's a book here by Duncan Hollis called The Comintern, which it's actually kind of extraordinary that a little book of about 150 pages manages to go through the you know 30 years of history in 20 some odd countries in such a lucid way, much more lucid than I'm going to be able to. So you should totally, totally check that out um, because um, you know. Basically, the gist of the history to follow the narrative where it's going is that in 1923, by 1923 rather, under the application of this tactic, the German Communist Party is able again to recover its mass base and is able to actually, you know, represent a significant force within um, German society. And they're presented with another revolutionary period where we can debate whether it actually is. I think was. But in 1923, there's another revolutionary period where the prospects for working class revolution are immediately on the table. And rather than seizing hold of it and trying to fight to, to lead the working class into that breach, um, the German Communist Party steps back and just says, well, we don't know. They, they kind of lose an opportunity. And from there, um, particularly because of the degenerations within the Russian Revolution itself, the, um, the prospects are um, kind of pushed off. So, from there, Zinoviev, who's the head of the who's the head of the Communist International at that point, is succeeded by Nikolai Bukharin. Bukharin moves the whole of the Comintern in a rightward direction. Um, we can get into more details about that if if we'd like to. But in 1928, he's then displaced, and um, Stalin um, has completely consolidated his power within Russia at that point and replaces various leaders within different sections of the Com Communist International whether it's in Germany or elsewhere, with people who are hand-picked. Um, and they're not actually put there to be the best leaders of the movement. They're picked there because they're going to be subservient to the interests of uh, the rising or now consolidated bureaucracy. Um, and in 1928, because Stalin's actually consolidated his power, he's at that point embarking on um, you know, socialist construction. The first five-year plan is actually opened up, and there's a goal within the bureaucracy to show how much better than the West they are through their own industrial prowess. And if they're going to be successful at that, the calculation goes within Stalin's common turn, then they need quiet on all fronts of Europe. They can't risk revolutions in, you know, in Europe that would actually prove that they're not as radical as they're saying on the one hand, or that would allow for the possibility of um, other powers reinitiating their invasion, which had been... Um, something they were doing and disruption all through the you know nineteen from the Russian Revolution through the nineteen twenties. So the Comintern is essentially trying to figure out ways that it can completely stop the advance of the the Communist parties elsewhere. And the the key thing at this point that they wheel out is an old theory of Zinoviev's uh, of social fascism. So the social fascism theory more or less puts forward the notion that there's no difference between social democracy and fascism, that they are two sides of the same coin, and accordingly, the communist parties need to be struggling as venomously against one as they are against the other. Um, you know, the, the problem with this 
is that it misses the fact that there is actually a very real sociological and political difference between fascism and social democracy. And, um, you know, it, it has the result of uh, paralyzing um, paralyzing the, uh, the, the communist parties because, you know, they're basically saying the reformist and everybody who follows the reformist, not just their leaders, but every worker who is in an organization that's not the communist party needs to be denounced because they're actually leading the revolution astray or worse, they're fascists and are interested in whatever it is that, you know, Stalin thinks fascism is about. Um, you know, so this, this is the sort of theory that's then used to justify something that they call the third, you know, third period where, you know, because of social, anyway, third period is opened up in the 19, in 1928 to, um, oh, I lost my spot. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, so the social fascism theory actually is used, like I said, to put the brakes on everything again. And um, the real tragedy of the situation is that from 1928 through 1931 in, in Germany, there's a, a struggle against a real rising fascist movement in the form of uh, Hitler's, Hitler's Nazi power, uh, Hitler's Nazi uh, party, the National Social Democratic Party, um, and rather than actually marshal a fight against the rise of fascism, the Communist Party in Germany essentially allows him to rise to power without any resistance, um, again, just so that way they don't have to worry about the prospects of disrupting um, Stalin's socialist construction. Um, you know, so I'm pushing my luck here because I haven't even started talking about the popular front, um, but, uh, you know, there's still some more important things that are in there. Uh, so the the KPD under the, the the leadership of Stalin's lapdogs and the Communist International starts doing other things that disrupt their possibility of building unity and isn't you know basically counter distinction to the orientation during the the United Front period. One of the most important bits is that in addition to denouncing all the reformist leaders, they start building red trade unions. Um, going out of their way to say we need our own separate communist trade unions that will actually guard us against the fascists, the social fascists. And while they say that they're doing this because they need to be making it clear to the working class that social democracy is going to betray them, the reality is that it rewelds the sections of the German um, you know, workers huge sections of the German workers' movement back to the Social Democratic Party, and the Communist Party itself degenerates into an organization that's essentially little more than a, um, you know, made up mostly of the unemployed, and they don't have a large base like they did at one point during the, um, they don't have the same base within the working class itself. Um, so the most absurd level of this sort of denunciation within um, the Communist Communist, uh, the German Communist Party against the Social Democratic Party is that they adopt a slogan in the midst of the struggle against fascism or non-existent struggle against fascism that says, uh, first Hitler will take power and then it'll be our turn. You know, we just have to wait for the Nazis to seize power. Everybody will see how unuseless, uh, how useless they are. It'll marshal more unity around the communist banner and it'll be fine. We'll go forward. Revolution will be happening immediately after the, the seizure of power by Hitler. So it's like this crazy, um, crazy underestimation of what fascism actually represents and hopefully we can actually talk some more about that because we could do a whole discussion on just the nature of fascism and the debates about the nature of fascism but um you know trotsky in the midst of this whole thing going on and the unfolding of this really tragic history is uh sending in dispatches from exile really imploring the party to abandon the sectarianism that they're um that they're carrying out at this point and return to the politics of the united front um 
you know, if there was ever time for unity in action among different sections of the working class, it's probably against an organization that makes this as an explicit purpose to smash and utterly destroy the working class. But, uh, you know, it wasn't as obvious to the Stalinists, I guess. Um, and, you know, even though he's increasingly marginalized at this point, I think that Trotsky's writings from this period in the struggle against fascism are some of the most important uh, contributions to the movement, to posterity. And, you know, I'll plug the 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 book here that Pathfinder puts out, uh, which is a collection of his writings called The Struggle Against Fascism in Germany. Laura's got it right there. Because it, it really helps um, further clarify the United Front policy in counter-distinction to the tactical maneuvers and uh, zigzags that are carried out under um, you know, under Stalin, um, you know, so it's in this context of the fight against fascism that he gives an even more important clarification of the United Front, like I said, and to just quote, quote him real quick on this, um, he basically, he says, uh, communist workers must say to their social democratic counterparts, uh, the policies of our parties are irreconcilably opposed, but if the fascists came tonight to wreck your organization's hall, we'll come running, arms in hand to help you. Will you promise us that if our organization is threatened, you will rush to our to our aid? This is the the quiescence of our policy in the in the present period. All agitation must be pitched in this key. No common platform with the social democracy or with the leaders of the German trade unions. No common publications, banners, or placards. March separately, but strike together. Agree only how to strike, whom to strike, and when to strike. Such an agreement can be concluded even with the devil himself, with his grandmother, and even with Nosk and uh, Grzynski. Nosk was one of the first social democratic uh, ministers in, um, in Germany that murdered or ordered the murdering of Rosa Luxemburg and um, Karl Liebknecht. He goes on to say, uh, on one condition, the, the tactical alliance can be made on one condition, that you not bind one's hands, and it's necessary without any delay, finally, to elaborate a practical system of measures not with the aim of merely exposing the social democracy, but with the aim of actual struggle against fascism. So again, it's the same points that were that were elaborated before. Um, but like I said, these are completely unheeded, and um, neither the Social Dem Democratic Party nor the German Communist Party really mounts a fight when when Hitler seizes power, and so fascism is essentially allowed to march into Berlin unopposed um, at this point. Um, so you know, so it's positive example on the one hand, negative example on the other, and then, you know, hopefully we can now dive into some of the stuff around the, the popular front. front. Um, so, we're skipping over another couple of years worth of history, but uh, the even though Stalin utterly denounces as social fascist the social democracy and does nothing to resist the rise of Hitler, by 1935 it's pretty clear even to him that there's a threat posed by you know, Hitler's Germany against the Soviet Union and that war is on, on the horizon and likely the Soviet Union are one of the first targets that they're going to be taking out. And because of this, uh, he, in the way that other politicians of you know, capitalist countries would do, starts seeking out military alliances that could help either offset the possibility of such an invasion or would wind up um, you know, allowing a victorious military operation if, if it came to that. And in preparation for that impending conflict, the Comintern really wants to demonstrate at this point that it can be useful for you know, shoring up support for bourgeois governments uh, in the event that there is a conflict, allowing Stalin to be able to position himself and say, I'm a reliable ally. Not only will I be able to provide weapons in a fight against, you know, in a fight against fascism, I'll also be able to prevent your labor movement from trying to overthrow you in the midst that you march them to slaughter in, you know, in the fields of Europe, like what happened in the First World War. And the 
the way that this is put forward and, and controlled is through, uh, you know, the <clears throat> the way that it's put forward is through the theory of the popular front, and that is an orientation that's being uh, pushed forward in the um, in the common turn. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote real quick, real quick the the justification for the popular front um, that's given. This is coming out of uh, Duncan Hollis's book, and this sorts of, sorts to of get you to the the heart of the matter of the difference between the two of them as well. So. Um, this is a resolution of the Comintern Executive in April of 1936 that says, uh, Today the situation is not what it was in 1914. Now it is not only the working class, the peasantry, and all the working people who are resolved to maintain peace, but also the oppressed countries and the weak nations whose independence is threatened by the war. The Soviet Union, the invincible fortress of the world proletariat and all the oppressed of all the countries, is the focal point of all the forces fighting for peace. In the present phase, a number of capitalist states are also concerned to maintain peace. Hence the possibility of creating a broad front of the working class, of all working people, and of entire nations against danger of imperialist war. So from a united front with other sections of the working class who aren't part of the Communist Party, Stalin moves into the direction of saying what we need is a united front with the democratic nations of Europe, the underprivileged nations of Europe being Britain and France. Um, I mean, it's an interesting estimation of things, but the, the key bit is that what it's putting forward is this notion that the workers' movement should, again, like I said before, subserviate its own interests because what they need to prove is that the Soviet Union can be a reliable ally. Um, it's not really stated explicitly in that question, but, um, you know, that's the goal. Um, in the midst of that, the way that they justify that within the workers' movement is by using basically fascism, the Nazis, etc., as a boogeyman that's held up to justify the notion that this is so terrible that you've got to do everything you can to actually prevent this from, from happening. And the policies of the so-called peace-loving governments um, should be the things that you're supporting because we need to convince them that they should fight against the fascists. Otherwise, we're going to have a devastation like we have in Germany again. And, um, you know, this is the sort of narrative argument that's put forward during Spain, during the Spanish Revolution. And there's another tragedy that unfolds as a result of Stalinism and their crazy or... I guess it's not crazy at all. It's actually quite rational from their perspective. But their, um, you know, their policies actually end up smashing another revolution in the midst of, um, of, of Spain. The, the way that this plays out is that after Franco's coup, there's a basic, again, spontaneous upsurge of working class self-organization and struggle that occupies factories, peasants seize their own land, and they kind of challenge the, the, the fascist business owners and all the rest of it throughout Spain, and you have a civil war situation that's created as Franco marches uh, to crush down the revolution. Um, the Communist Party, while this is going on, makes hard arguments and uses their organizations to kind of tighten the bolts to say, what we need to do is to preserve the democratic bloc with Spain's bourgeoisie to convince them that the fight against fascism is the most important thing um, out there. And despite the, you know, despite the abysmally lopsided military conditions, in the midst of the social revolution unfolding, you actually do have, you know, the Spanish workers organizing their own democratic militias turning back Franco's march forward. It's quite amazing to actually read the, the way that this stuff uh, unfolds. Um, but the, like I said, the Communist Party, by putting the military victory forward as the, the most important thing, basically argues, not basically, they do argue that you need to be moving back from the social revolution, you need to give the factories back to the bosses, you need to stop occupying the land, because if you do all that stuff, then the, the capitalist class in Spain is never going to support us, and that's the most important thing for beating fascism uh, in the form of Franco. Um, 
you know, the, the problem, though, is that the entirety of the Spanish capitalist class had already signed up for Franco and were already supporters. So Trotsky's turn of phrase is that what they were trying to do was conclude a, uh, an alliance with the, with the shadow of the bourgeoisie in the form of their representatives that were left, but there was no social weight behind it. Instead, all that was done was Franco was able to actually crush the revolution after Stalin has demobilized the militias and um, allowed for uh, this to be something that's much easier than it would have been otherwise. Um, you know, so skipping through that, the the last thing that I'll say as far as the, the Spanish situation is that um, while Stalin and the Communist Party were basically saying that you needed to actually you carry out a military struggle. The only path to victory, or Trotsky's argument, the only path to victory was actually through the social revolution. That's what was advancing things. That's what was allowing for things to move forward. Um, so that's the popular front in practice. I'm, I'm coming to the sort of end of what I'm able to say here, but I'll, I'll start to kind of like pull out and draw out some of the lessons here. Um, the first is as far as the, the popular front and the notion that you could be making alliances with the democratic capitalist class or other sections of the progressive bourgeoisie um, sounds pretty appealing, right? Like, you know, it'd be great if we could just, like, work with the democratic bourgeoisie who have all these resources, have their own military, and could actually be on our side to fight against fascism. But the, the trouble is that what it misses is you actually have diametrically opposed class interests, and that's what plays out in Spain. You know, the interest of the capitalist class in Spain was to preserve its own rule. And they're happy to do that under Franco. They're happy to do that under democracy. Whatever it takes so as though not to be dispossessed of their own means of production, their factories, their farms, their um, everything else that's involved with it. Whereas the working class actually does have an interest in resisting fascism because it means the destruction of their work, their own organizations. And the, the capitalist class doesn't have that that interest at all. So this is the thing that is the fundamental difference between the orientation of the United Front and the Popular Front. The, the Popular Front holds out the possibility for uh, cross-class uh, resistance. This map is not part of my talk. Um, the, um, so that, that's, like I said, the, the, one of the most important differences. Um, it, it really should be said, though, that in the midst of the Popular Front period, the Communist parties internationally and even in the U.S. are able to grow more massively than any other non-revolutionary period. So there are a number of radicals um, and, well, there are a number of people who had been Communist Party members who harken back to the Popular Front period as like the heyday of communism. Um, it's sort of presented with this glossy sheen where they mobilized thousands of people internationally to combat fascism in Spain and they paper over the, the, the problems with it. And, um, you know, what it what it actually winds up doing is cementing, you know, liberalism into the into the heart of, um, you know, the the working class movement. What I mean by that, it's it's most clearly exposed in the situation in the U.S. So in the in the U.S. and people should go to Kyle Brown's talk on on the uh, the popular the legacy of Stalinism because I hear that he's actually going to talk about this a little bit more. But in the 1930s, during the Popular Front, there was an argument that was lodged in the U.S. that the the path for the the American Revolution would go through the Democratic Party. You get the Democrats elected, and then something happens, and you get to revolution at some point. Um, you know the slow the slogan that they carried out was that uh, communism is a 20, 20th century Americanism, and you know so you start to understand that what's actually going on is not the advancement of the the communist parties despite their numerical growth. It's the delusion of their politics uh, to the point where they're palpable for um, you know the lowest common denominator, whereas 
as Trotsky lays out earlier, you know, the, the goal in the earlier periods were to kind of win people to the notion of working class revolution um, under their own under their own arms. Um, you know, again, as far as examples go, in the Second World War in the U.S., the Communist Party signs a no-strike pledge. And besides just signing the no-strike pledge, they had been the most instrumental force in building the, you know, the CIO. So them signing the strike, no-strike pledge means that their unions, um, their unions don't go on strike, don't resist the war, actually say that they should support it, and you get a huge confusion that, that stems, uh, stems from that. Um, so for 70 years or so, the Communist Party and other sections of the labor movement more importantly, other sections of the labor movement now, because the Communist Party is a little bit irrelevant, but um, large sections of the, of the labor movement have been cemented to the Democratic Party and continue to support the thing. I haven't actually looked at the, you know, the website in a little while, but I'm pretty sure you could find an editorial on the People's World talking about Comrade Obama and the, you know, the advance of socialism in the U.S. It's, it's like the sort of politics that are still out there, and um, that's why all this stuff is really important. Um, you know, so the sort of saying... You know, there's a there's a great little turn of phrase that Marx has about the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. If you actually apply this to the popular front, you get something more like, you know, the first time tragedy, second time farce, third hundredth time. It's like super farce at this point. So for 70 years, they're pursuing a they're pursuing a policy that actually hasn't resulted in uh, things moving moving forward very much. Um, so that's as much as the history as I can go through. Like I said, it's a little bit problematic to try and cram all that stuff in. But just to come back to some of the general lessons really really quick to kind of distill a bit of this, um, I think if there's something that's, that should be taken away from the whole of the discussion, it's that the real, um, the real orientation that we should have isn't to defend the United Front on a matter of principle or whatever else on a matter of principle. Instead, it's to be able to survey the actually existing conditions that we exist in and determine our tactics based on that. We can learn huge amounts about how we can actually unite sections of the working class around a general approach to unity and struggle and a non-sectarian disposition to fighting for demands that we actually support and other sections of society support. But we, we shouldn't just like transplant the experiences, put them into today and say, the popular front was bad, so what we need to do is go back to exactly the united front, walk into our coalition meetings, quote Trotsky, and expect that suddenly we're going to you know, be moving things forward. There's really important differences. I mean, the, the, most significant, the most significant one is that in the present situation, there are not mass communist parties. You know, communist parties cannot, you know, go out, put forward a, pla a political platform that tries to win anybody, really. We're not at that point. There's also not mass social democratic organizations. There's actually more of a lack of organization than anything else. Um, so the context is entirely different. But what we should try to kind of draw away is a general disposition and the, the way that we can try to move forward um, that is inspired by the, the situation, um, inspired by the experiences of the Communist International and inspired by the sort of tactic of the United Front. Um, so hopefully people can like come in on any number of these sorts of things, and there's going to be lots of questions, I'm sure of it, uh, so people should just shoot them out there, and there's a lot of people in the room, so hopefully we can have a conversation about some of the history, about some of the, you know, more general points, and, you know, go from there. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. 
To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.